Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, Episode 88. I'm your host, Sarah Head, with my co-hosts today, Ken Fader and Jeb Card. And today we're talking to special guest, Dr. Mark Allen Peterson from Miami University in Ohio. Today we're talking about... Gin, not the wonderful drink, but the spooky evil spirits that haunt lamps and grant wishes. We talked to Dr. Peterson about the reality of gin. What were these creatures? How were they described in the Bible? How were they represented in ancient Egypt? And how are they represented today in modern Arabic cultures? Get ready to think critically. I get it? Maybe? Digging in a trench. Hey everyone and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I am your host Sarah and I am joined today with my co-hosts Ken Fader and Jeb Card. How's it going guys? Doing all right. Uh, just uh, we finally are now getting fall weather that actually looks and feels like fall weather. The never-ending summer is is apparently over. Uh, knock on wood. And I found out uh, that my book is probably coming out in May, it sounds like, with maybe some preliminary stuff a little earlier than that. So that's what I'm up to. Yay, exciting. And Ken, how you doing? Hey, you know, I'm doing all right. Like Jeb here in New England, we are finally experiencing something that is similar to fall, and the leaves are starting to change. And it's real pretty, real pretty weather that we're having, so... Uh, and we're coming up, we're looking at midterms coming up pretty quickly. So. Oh, God, Don't yes. remind yes. me. Yes, yes the black yeah. kid of midterms. Yeah, our, no. our, our, our grades are due in a few days, and uh, yeah, yeah. I'm terrified of the papers I have yes. to write. But anyway, uh, we are joined today with a special guest, uh, Mark Allen Peterson. He Hi. is going to be our resident expert on gin today, and that's J-I-N. Which, not G-I-N. As an archaeologist, we... We all just fell over ourselves, jumping in to make sure we were t- we know we're not talking about the the, beverage. the spirit, no. but the other spirit. Um, so very good, very good, Jim. I like yeah, Mark. Oh, might oh. also be an expert in gin. Well, he's eth- he's eth- not really. I'm these ethnographers. These ethnographers. We're just grabbing them all. They're like Pokemon. We're collecting them. <laughs> But uh, um, Mark, when we when when I mentioned that we're talking about uh, a spirit, not a spirit, is a spirit even a proper term? And have, has our audience ever even heard of these? Well, everybody knows what a genie is. Uh, you know, genies are these wish-granting spirits right. from the Middle East that are trapped in objects, and if you if you release them from the object, then they grant you wishes, uh, usually three wishes, and. This is a, a Western reimagination of a Middle Eastern uh, being uh, called a jinn, uh, one of the three creations of God. Uh, God created angels, jinn, and humans. And like angels, they're magical and they're part of the invisible world, but like humans, they have free will and they are 
capable, some of them, of doing extraordinary magical feats. And so they're, they're sort of betwixt and between the supernatural world and the, and the ordinary world. I don't think most people in the Middle East would think of them uh, as spirits always. Sometimes they very clearly have bodies. Okay. Uh, but other times they can, they can also take possession of you the way that uh, demons are imagined to take possession of you in the West. So right, right. Uh, they're sort of betwixt and between spirits and uh, embodied beings as well. Which so sounds, so sounds a lot like our episode that we did on fairies last year where they're sort of the people that are betwixt. They're not quite gods. They're not quite angels. They're not quite people. I have, yes. Um, Go ahead. I'm sorry. That was rude. Uh, I was just going to say, fairies are a good analogy for jinn uh, in many ways. Not entirely, because jinn also have these very important connections to uh, devils and demons. But uh, they, um, but in many ways, they're very much like fairies. So, Mark, what you're telling me is that those of us of a certain age who grew up watching I Dream of Genie. And then we took our kids to the Disney movie Aladdin, and so genies are like Robin Williams. That that's all a Western creation? Yeah, and it's, it's especially interesting how that came about, because around the time that, uh, in the 18th century, the, that uh, capitalism was really, uh, print capitalism was emerging, we have this series of, of translations of... Alfleila Walela, The Thousand Nights in a Night, which contains a number of stories about genies. And as this came in to the West, uh, Westerners tended to pick up only on a couple of the stories. I mean, there's a story where a man falls in love with and goes through adventures and marries uh, a gene from under the sea. There are uh, stories about powerful jinn who uh, do all kinds of um, uh, terrible things. There's jinn who get killed and their relatives seek revenge. But the ones that Westerners tend to focus on are the were the Aladdin story uh, and the story of the jinn uh, of the uh, jinn and the fisherman, where he releases a jinn and uh, it's going to destroy him, and he gets it to grant him wishes instead. And so this idea of jinn in objects. Uh, a lamp or a ring in Aladdin or a brass bottle in the case of the fisherman and the gin. That's what sort of took hold in the Western imagination. Interesting. Interesting. That, that again kind of ties us into our, into our fairy stuff. Cause I've talked about this. I think that old objects often, if they lose their identity, often get it sort of attributed to these extra humans, these people that are not us. Uh, we talked about the, uh, the, um, the uh, Luck of Eden Hall, which is actually a medieval right. Syrian cup, but it becomes a fairy cup once it loses that that identity. Uh, and so you're saying the ones that grant wishes uh, tied to objects, I, I'm, I'm actually wondering if there's a little syncretism with fairy traditions when they adopt these particular ones. Yeah, I think, I think so. I think, that, I think that in many ways what happened was Europe already had a whole set of mythic characters that inhabited certain kinds of structural positions in the way they told stories. Uh, we had fairies, we had ghosts, we had uh, demons and devils. And in the Middle East, jinn can occupy any of those things. They can be 
tempters that are trying to win your soul away from God. Uh, they can be uh, somehow connected with spirits of the dead or take on the both the image and personality of your dead relatives. Uh, they can possess you like devils or demons. Uh, they can also live in uh, space, liminal spaces like caves and forest groves and, and rivers, isolated river valleys and abandoned people. houses often exactly right? yes. And, yes and and then they can encounter people and reward them or punish them for their good behavior or bad behavior as happens in fairy tales along that line i think one of the interesting traits of the gen that you brought up though is that they are considered creatures of free will on top of all of that so it's not as if they are compelled to be evil or compelled to be good even though they're recognized as being one of the creations of God. So I found that to be interesting in how that parallels. They're like, they're like superhumans, basically. Like they're basically humans, but they have these powers. They're basically humans. They have these powers. There are definitely some jinn who in the story seem to be much weaker than others. When you hear the term ifrit, yeah. And a freet of the jinn, and a freet seems to be a, a term for power. And so, and a freet is a jinn who has enormous powers. Uh, the King Solomon is put in command of a and and he can uh, command an a to take his throne all the way around the world in the blink of an eye. Uh, we're told, and so, and do, it's. Do we, it's do we know how old that story, or like not just the Ifrit, but the whole, can, can we dive into that a little, the King Solomon story? Well, I don't know how old it is. It's certainly very well known throughout the Islamic world. King Solomon was given power over the jinn. It was part of that gift of wisdom uh, that both the Bible and the Quran talk about. In the Quran, he's given uh, power over the jinn. He has a seal. Uh, the seal of Solomon, which he can use if in Al-Layla Wa-Layla, the, the Thousand and One Nights, there's a story called the City of Brass, and these people are searching for the City of Brass where hundreds of these brass bottles that Suleiman put evil jinn and ifrits into and sealed them away are available for people to to. To take, and so they're they're searching for the city of brass. It's a it's a quest story, uh, but when they get there, it's not what they think. So there's this notion that uh, Suleiman the Great was the greatest of the ancient pre-Muhammad Islam, uh, you know, kings, and uh, he was given these powers by God to command the Afrits. And many contemporary sorcerers and sorcerers through uh, history in the Middle East have commanded uh, ifrits and, and jinn through the power of the Seal of Solomon. And that's how you build things. So one of the things that you can do is uh, you can build the city of Palmyra. Some people have claimed, some travelers have claimed it was built by jinn. Or the city of Petra uh, right. or um, the Dome of the Rock even. Uh, some people, or the pyramids, uh, yeah. people have claimed these were built by jinn. Uh, they're too beautiful, too uh, awesome to have been built by ordinary humans. Yeah, and and we we uh, to prepare for this, we we read an article by uh, Driaskins and Lucarella that talks about mm -hmm. modern Egyptians 
some modern Egyptians talking about, oh, the pharaohs must have been powerful sorcerers. They controlled the number of jinn to basically do their bidding, uh, which is sort of a, a very different take than the sort of Western ancient aliens perspective. Right. Well, that's because we know if you live in the Middle East, you live around jinn. Uh, you know jinn exist, even if you don't have a direct encounter with them. Most people you know can tell you stories of encounters with jinn. It's rarely they themselves who encountered the jinn. It's usually an uncle or a cousin or right. someone. A friend of a friend. A friend of a friend. I've had students tell me when I taught at the American University in Cairo, I had students tell me about, you know, their uncle's encounter with sorcerers who had control of jinn and who did uncanny things that were inexplicable if, if jinn don't exist. Uh, I've had, uh, I had a very interesting dinner with a psychiatrist once who had a degree from a American University and, you know, he talked about the challenge of distinguishing between when someone is mentally ill oh, wow. and when they are possessed by a jinn. And, and I've seen I've seen articles like that as well. Yeah, and so you you have to you you have to for the psychiatrist this is a very important determination because if they try to treat someone who's possessed of a jinn, not only will be unsuccessful, but all kinds of terrible things can happen to everyone involved. Uh, that's got to be turned over to someone who has expertise in getting rid of gin. Whereas mm -hmm. if you take someone who's mentally ill and you turn them over to someone who expels gin, then you run the risk of making their mental illness worse. So that they sounds, see this as a real problem. That sounds very much like you'll hear people talk about how do you distinguish mental illness from possession? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Do you, do you call a priest or do you call a psychiatrist, and how do you distinguish uh, those two conditions? Right. So that sounds very similar. Oh, I think I was hearing actually that there's a, a branch that still performs exorcisms, and this is of course completely third hand. So feel free to poo-poo it. But apparently, one of the things they do first is they make you go through a battery of psychological exams to make sure there's not something psychologically wrong with you that could explain the quote-unquote possession before they perform the exorcism, but they're still willing to perform the exorcism, you know? Well, sure. So it's no, okay. I, I've, I've heard that as well, but I, I, I probably know about, no, no more than you do on that. Yeah, it's something I heard on another podcast. So, you know, it, it has so, to be factually true. So Mark, if, if people are beset by bad luck, if, if somebody's car breaks down and there's a perfectly, no, no good reason for it, are gin presumed to be the culprits of bad luck happening to otherwise good people? Actually, uh, more often that's going to be attributed to the evil eye. Oh, oh, okay. So <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm having that's a another podcast. Of bad luck... That's another show. Well, well no, yeah. I, we no, can talk about really, it a lot. Yeah. I, I want to hear this. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right, What's so, the comparison? Well, so uh, they're, they're, they're actually, there's, there's absolutely, they have nothing in common. What um, the evil eye is uh, a kind of magic that uh, we're all capable of doing uh, when we look at someone with envy or with um, anger, extreme anger. Uh, some people have more of this capacity than others. None of so, us have ever done this on this show, ever. Exactly, of course. <laughs> and and, and so, <laughs> Not on any of the episodes I've listened to. So what happens is if I'm miserly, 
if I uh, own a shop and I'm overly competitive with my fellow shopkeepers or I go in for ostentatious displays of wealth and I'm, I'm spending lots of money on things uh, and I'm not giving to the poor, if, I, if I'm uh, behaving in ways that are sort of antisocial, then people will... There, there will be these social implications, and one of them is that will happen to me is the evil eye. People are looking on at me with envy, with anger, with mm-hmm. mistrust, and this has physical effects. Uh, other people are believed to just have the evil eye in a kind of sorcerous way. There's certain people who just you want to avoid. They're, they're just always angry, and maybe they're possessed of a jinn. So you could get the jinn in here that way. And so their glances, even if they're unjust, could still affect you. But for the most part, you try to ward them off with amulets. Uh, almost everyone I know, there are uh, blue amulets, blue and brass amulets that you can get uh, anywhere uh, in the Middle East. Any shop, any, uh, there's any marketplace you go to, there's somebody selling these. Uh, I have one uh, in my office. And when I... Um, but one of the most fascinating uh, things is, is mirrors, historically, could chase away the evil eye. You know, you could sort of reflect the evil eye back at people. Oh, all right, all right. So taxi drivers in Cairo started hanging old CD-ROMs from their rearview mirrors. Because uh-huh. these things spin around and they're, they're perfect mirrors on one side. Well, that's fascinating because that was a big thing in, I want to say, especially the 90s and early 2000s in El Salvador, and I don't know why. And I've asked people, and I've heard things like, oh, they got sent back by relatives in the States, and they didn't, you know, they didn't have anything to do with them. I, I, I honestly have no idea, but the CDs hanging from the, the, the rearview mirror, like the central rearview mirror inside yeah. the car was a huge thing in El Salvador. I haven't seen it as much recently. That's interesting. Well, in the Middle East, it's it's reflecting the evil eye. It's 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 warding huh. off. Do they still do it today? Is that still a, a practice today, or because I I know I've seen it here in the states occasionally, but not like Jeb was saying since maybe the late nineties, early two thousand. I was the last time. Let's see, in two thousand. I know they were still doing it uh, in two thousand ten. Well, there you go. Okay. All right. Um, so fairly recently. The other thing you mentioned was blue, blue glass amulets. And I think I've seen some of the ones you have actually. Do you have any knowledge as to why blue and glass? I have a reason for asking. I don't. Uh, I know that blue is sort of universally around the Mediterranean and you'll meet Greeks and, uh, people from the French coast on the Mediterranean who also believe in the evil eye and who also make use of uh, blue, blue, blue glass amulets. Uh, blue glass beads. Blue porcelain is okay. If you, if you have okay. porcelain, you paint it a shiny blue. Uh, there's particular things. Eyes are especially valuable. Um, there's a particular figurine uh, figure called the Hand of Fatima, which is the name yes. of God written in such a way that uh, the letters of God's name, Allah, uh, form fingers. And so the, the hand of Fatima is one of the preferred amulets. So there's a number of these. Well, it just, it just puts in mind, maybe because I was teaching this today, uh, blue glass faience amulets from Egypt. 
yeah, uh, there's no reason not to believe that it goes back that far. I mean, I'd like uh, to see something connective, but it just it just saying it reminds me you, of it. Can you explain what that is real quick, Jeb? Because I don't think um, everybody's aware. So in, in classical Egypt, but it's, I think it's, I mean, I think throughout like Pharaonic Egypt, but especially in the later period when you have, you know, the Ptolemaic and the Greeks and then the, the larger Hellenistic and then after, um, you have people, and, and Mark, feel free to jump in if, if I say anything stupid here, uh, you, you have amulets uh, with various uh, symbols, many of them sort of icons of various deities. The most famous one, you've all seen this, the sort of Egyptian eye is, if I'm, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, the wedjot. It's the uh, sort of the eye of the sun and eye of Horus, uh, and it is a protective symbol. Uh, and while they can be made of various things, the most common thing you see these things in is a blue faience, which is, uh, it's kind of like, I think it's called frit. It's, it's a glass, but it's not translucent. Right. I think most Egyptians would, would be willing to believe that there's a continuity because they tend to, they would, they, my, my friends anyway, would tend to say that, uh, the, ancient Egyptians were doing the same things. They, they were pagans, so they consorted with jinn uh, in ways that contemporary Muslims aren't supposed to, but uh, they had to ward off the evil eye, just like contemporary mm -hmm. people do. They had to deal with uh, sorcery and, and the enslavement of jinn and the potential of possession by jinn. So what, where, where the explanation of the eye I have heard is never that it's historically related to the eye of Ra because that would make it haram and you couldn't use it. Mm -hmm. uh, so the contemporary explanation is, you know, you, you're making an image of an eye because you're warding off the evil eye. It's, you know, sure. old-fashioned right. golden bow, Frasier, you know. <laughs> uh, sympathetic magic. Kinds of magic. Yeah, sympathetic magic. That's really great. Uh, let's go to break real quick, and when we come back, I want to talk about this intersection of uh, his, uh, ancient, his, uh, ancient Egyptian faith, archaeology, and jinn. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba. 
everyone, and we are back, and we are still talking with Mark Allen Peterson, and I really wanted to talk about the article that uh, Jeb sent us to prepare us for this podcast, um, and it's the the untying the magic of the pharaoh, and it's uh, Barbara Dreiskin and Rita Lucarelli. That's, I think I yeah, like Dreiskins and Lucarella, something like that. I don't know them so. I, and I apologize that I mispronounced your names, but it's a really great article. Um, and I want to touch on specifically the concept of the shakes and their use of their personal gin to locate archaeological sites and then clear those sites of evil gin or evil spirits so that the sites are safe for looting. Not because I want to talk about the looting, but I... It sounds very much like psychic archaeology, uh, something that we've talked about on the show before. And just the concept of using them as like bloodhounds is kind of a neat concept. I mean, can, I, I you, even, can, wait, can you even call them evil if their job is to protect true, these true. tombs That's from looting? Excellent point. They're not really evil. Excellent point. And, and can, we, can we actually start with the definition of shake? Because honestly, for me, before looking into this a few years ago, I just thought it meant like local important it, it, person yeah, that, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. In many ways it does. And okay. so okay. if I have control of a gin, I'm a local important person. That's fair. Uh, you you know, a sheikh can be the person who leads prayer at a mosque. A sheikh can be a local authority in a village. It can be a tribal authority within a uh, lineage. Uh, and that's what, how I often would have thought of it, yeah. But if I'm a... Uh, if I have control of a jinn, uh, sheikh is, is going to be a title people are going to give me. Uh, and, and I would emphasize here, too, that on this notion of, of good and evil, uh, good jinn are jinn that follow, that, that choose to follow God, and bad jinn are jinn who choose to not follow God. All of these jinn involved in finding treasures and guarding treasures are enslaved. So someone through sorcery has enslaved a jinn to be a guardian spirit of their tomb. So if I'm a pharaoh and I have command of, uh, if not command of jinn, I have command of people who have command of jinn, then I'm going to get a jinn to guard my tomb. And if I'm a sheikh who can uh, take control of jinn, then I can use that to combat those jinn. And if I'm a grave robber, the last thing I want to do is face a supernatural menace if I don't have something supernatural to fight it with. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty cross-cultural uh, pro tip there. Just never do that. <laughs> yeah, don't, that's, you know, Laura Croft is, is you know, she needs a jinn. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> okay, aside from that, and I killed that. I killed that conversation. Wow. <laughs> well, they're like that. In a while. The, well, the, the, honestly, one of the reasons is I, I'm trying to hold back and not say, "Hey, this sounds just like," and then say fairies again. But there, I mean, I literally have. But it does sound a, like the fairies a, thing, though. I mean, it it, it does. There, I have literally a, a, a reproduction of a grimoire about how to do exactly this: how to basically get fairies and spirits, because they're considered the same thing, and demons all, all together, under your control to do things. And of course, if we have the genie from the djinn, the modern version of that would be the leprechaun. You know, oh, catch the leprechaun. He has to give you, you right. know, three wishes because you've stolen his pot of gold or, or, or something like that, which 
which sounds uh, awfully, awfully familiar. Um, one thing that, so we, we mentioned the, the, the Jurassicans and Lucarella, and uh, I, I think that that's fascinating because they did a study of how people have seen it in the past and the present. Um, Mark, what is the name of, and where can our, our listeners find, we can repeat this at the end, but the, the article that you were working on, you, 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 or you worked on, you mentioned the sort of gin to genie. Oh, uh, so I have an article called From Gin to Genies. Uh, it's in a book called Folklore Cinema, edited by Sharon Sherman and uh, Michael Coven. Okay. And I think it's actually available online. It's part of, uh, not the Haditha, but there's the other, uh, the one that makes a lot of things available online. Because I, I went and found a scanned copy, or you gave me one, but then we found it online, like a much cleaner one. Uh, so we should be able to put that in the show notes. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I think I think um, Utah State University at some point made uh, the book available online uh, in its entirety. Yeah, no, and so we should definitely read that. And and you talked about in, in that a number of more uh, obscure to I think Western audiences, but movies that sort of combine the two that are are in the the Middle East, you know, in the area where gin are very prevalent, but have elements also of the Western kind of transformation to the genie as well. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things that fascinates me, I mean, I mean, so historically gin probably were spirits of location prior to Islam. And they were clearly so well understood, uh, by Arabs that when Muhammad had his revelation and you know, issued the Quran, uh, the spoke spoke the Quran. The jinn are in there, um, taken for granted that there's these these three kinds of beings. So this is not being introduced at that point. What do you mean by spirit of location? I think I know, but could you spell that out a little? Well, bit? so uh, in uh, throughout throughout the Mediterranean, you had these uh, in in ancient Greek myth and Roman myth and Etruscan and you know Asia Minor. You know, you had uh, you had little gods of places. Uh, okay. The god of the grove, the god of the rocks, the god of the forest, the god of this cave, and people specific, would make specific places. Propitiary, yeah, specific places, and people would do little propitiatory things uh, so that you know terrible things wouldn't happen. And then, if you built nearby, you know, people had to propitiate these gods. And uh, there's evidence that that. The, the ancient Egyptians believed in these little gods. They seem to be very widespread throughout ancient Mediterranean uh, lore. And so one theory is that this is this is what jinn were prior to their being sort of canonized in, in Islam and explained by Muhammad as where they actually fit in. Right. Uh, between right. angels which are made of light and humans who are made of clay, we have the jinn who are made of smokeless fire. So instead of rejecting this as superstition of ancient people there's a no those things are real but we know what they are and they didn't they are jinn exactly and okay. if you think about that that's a very powerful way to missionize because oh yeah you absolutely. Say, you know look your ancestors weren't wrong right they just didn't really know what they were doing and you know they're 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 putting their worship in the wrong direction but they weren't right. crazy or deluded or foolish right no. And, and we, we see a lot of that today. Right. And I also think it's interesting to borrow a page out of Jeb's book, that whole 
idea of them being specific to an area. There are many fairies that are tied to a specific area or a specific thing. So, I mean, can I ask the question of, do you have an idea as to why there seems to be so much of an overlap, or do you think it's just a coincidence? I think that... I, I think that that uh, fairies are a reworking in the medieval imagination uh, of these same kinds of ancient propitiatory deities of place, and they get reworked in the popular imagination. They absorb a lot of things, and I think the same thing is true of jinn. Uh, jinn absorb a lot of things. I mean, there are other supernatural creatures uh, that people will talk about, like ghouls. Uh, and, so, and now they're not related to Jin. Well, this is the trick. Uh, yes and no. If you start to try to pin someone down, since ghouls aren't mentioned in the Quran or the Hadith, they seem to be a kind of Jin. And, and so the, the, the boundaries of these things get very vague uh, from one story to another. Yeah, and that, and that's not super surprising. Anybody, one of the things I, I think a lot of people that come from a background that's not a true believer, and they they try to grapple with a lot of the stuff we talk about that in the show, they'll often try to create a taxonomy or try to create. Right. I mean, I remember doing this, and then you quickly realize it's a terrible, terrible decision because that's that's just not how this works. Um, let me let me kind of riff off of something you you were mentioning. So you, you you suggested that it's the same sort of these these new traditions coming in and dealing with spirits of place, gods of place, in essence, an enchanted landscape. Is is this sort of maybe the tension between a more universalist worldview and religion that is not tied to landscape is is much broader in its cosmology versus you know again I'm thinking. Uh, of you know Christianity entering an area where it has all these traditions, but is more associated with uh, personal salvation, a, a word from outside, not necessarily as local. Is it is it that kind of a dynamic? Maybe. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the one of the things that happens is we go from, I mean, with Islam, we go from a group of people who are worshipping tutelary deities, tribal deities, deities of place, to uh, a universal monotheism that is at least theoretically binding on all people at all times. Right, right. And so, at that, and, and, and the jinn are fascinating because they become incorporated into this. Uh, one of the things that is um, very interesting to me is that in Islamic lore, uh, the devil, Iblis, and the devils, the shaitan, are not fallen angels, they're fallen jinn. Huh. Interesting. Angels can't fall. Angels are in perfect accord with God. Uh, so they don't have free will, so they can't fall. Oh, sure. Yeah, right. good point. So they don't acknowledge the... Uh I guess it's a Gnostic text where there was the battle in heaven and a third of the angels fell or no one else. Could. Yeah, that's not that's a, not a uh, thing for that, them? That's, 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 there in, that's there in some rabbinical traditions. It's there in some of the Gnostic texts, but it's not, a, uh, it's not an Islamic uh, 
is not something that Islam has incorporated into its story. Uh, they don't need that. Um, there is a time at the beginning where, and this actually parallels a different rabbinic text, uh, where God creates Adam out of clay, and he asks the uh, angels and jinn to bow to Adam, his new creation. And the angels do so because they're in perfect accord with God's will. And Iblis, who is to the jinn what Adam was to humans, right, right. refuses to bow because he's made of fire, smokeless fire at that, and this thing is made of clay. And so, again, it's out of his pride, uh, he then cuts him out, himself off from God. And his goal is sort of to prove himself right by seducing humans away from God and thus proving to God that he was right all along these people are unworthy of him so he's kind of a Lucifer figure he's very much a Lucifer he's figure very interesting. Uh, and it also reflects the free will right. that, that the, these, these beings have the, having the ability to say no to God right Exactly. And and you have to have that ability to say no to God. That's the essence of free will. And the shaitans are the jinn who have turned away from God as opposed to jinn who have uh, who follow God. And then you've got um, you can have afrits from either group. Uh, you can have jinn uh, shaitans that don't seem to have very much power. They just kind of whisper at you. And then you can have jinn, uh, if uh, shaitans that are, are haunt your house and, and do terrible things to you and have to be cast out by a sheikh or a czar practitioner. So, I mean, I have to ask this question because we're talking about they can either, you know, follow God or reject God. Are there atheist jinn? That's a good question. Uh, there are many jinn stories where the question of whether you're good or not doesn't come up except that usually they will at least use phrases and this is one of the things that's fascinating now all the jinn are sort of very cosmopolitan and if you release them the first thing they'll do is praise god uh but they don't always act good so they may say they may say the right phrases but they're not always uh, uh they're not they're clearly not always doing god's will and so in that sense, too, they're like humans. I think that's very interesting, the whole concept of this, the, the human-esque gen. I think it's not something that you really see. I feel like it's not something that you really see in other kind of religious um, fairy tales, for lack of a better term, where it's, you know, they're, they're either evil or they're good. They're very rarely ambiguous right. like this, even though there's a lot of parallels between the gen and the fae. Again, the fae are usually split into right. what see and unseely, seely and unseely. Well, they're, they're, they, in some in some traditions they are, uh, in others they they are actually the middle ground you're looking for. When you mention the third thrown out, uh, one explanation right, for fairies right, right, yes. say it's, it's basically they're the ones that were sort of, eh, yeah. I'm not certain about this, and then they get tossed yeah. out. Um, and they're often very they're trickstery, so they're they're more. Good and bad, but not like really aligning either way. Whereas Mark is really talking about something where it's like like people, some are 
really over here and some are really over here and some are sort of in the middle. Whereas generally with fairies and fae versus straight up demons, a lot of them are just in the middle. Right. And they don't really pretend to not be. Mm-hmm. No, not much, except for maybe to screw with you. Right, exactly. Right. And in, in uh, you, you were talking about movies earlier, and in some uh, Middle Eastern movies about jinn, uh, there are very real um, issues with are they good or are they bad. Uh, there's a... Uh, there's a jinn film that's very much about jinn, not genies, in which uh, a jinn falls in love with a woman, and he haunts her home, and he is trying to. Um, he wants to. He wants her to fall in love and marry him. There's a, a Quranic uh, or or an admonition in the Hadith that says that you should not. Uh, you, humans should not marry jinn. Uh, and she is trying to abide by that, although she finds herself attracted to him. He is trying to seduce her, and he's got these evil, uh, shaitanic uh, members of his family who are telling him to just take her. And he, but he wants love, and so there's this. There's a. He occupies this very interstitial huh. category as he haunts her home. Well, you, you had mentioned Incubus and, and, and Succubus earlier. Is there any of that sort of nocturnal assault tradition, which I'm, you know, the whole gets tied into the Mara, the nightmare, the sleep paralysis sort of thing with Jin? Uh, yes, not as dramatic as, as okay. something like an Incubus or Succubus, but there's certainly the idea that Jin can haunt your home. Okay. And the... And they can do it for any number of reasons. They can do it because you've committed some grave sin and that's made an opening for them to be able to enter. Uh, but some people believe that jinn can just come into especially interstitial spaces, liminal spaces in your home, like the basement or the, the bathroom. Well, that's uh, I saw that. That was really... Yeah, no, I, don't, I want no part of that. None. Well, <laughs> I love that people so say prayers before going into their bathroom. I mean, there is a lot yes. you can say about that. Most of it has to I, do I with could, the can I, that, afterwards. Well, I was about to say, my bathroom, that's an entirely rational behavior. <laughs> <laughs> or you can just put a little Quranic verse above your bathroom and just touch it before you enter. Right. Huh. Um, huh. And that, that has the same effect. I just, I just love that it's the bathroom that is the evil room in the house. I mean, it just like tickles me on a very childish level. It's not evil. It's it's liminal. It's marginal. It's not really a living space, but it's in your living space. That's a really good point. A little, little, bit of the, little bit of the Mary Douglas there. <laughs> so Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I think that that's a huge part of jinn. Jinn are betwixt and between. Right. They're betwixt and between good and evil. They're betwixt and between the invisible and visible world. They occupy places that are betwixt and between. Basements right. aren't really part of your house, but they right. are. Yeah. Uh, bathrooms are set aside for one particular purpose. You don't live in the bathroom. Right. You go in there and you come back I mean, out. Maybe and you don't so live there's in the a bathroom, kind of. But... <laughs> well, <laughs> we're not. 
My uh, teenagers. Not, My teenagers. We're, we're, we're not getting into people's <laughs> diet, people's other bodily functions, whatevs. We're, we're not doing that right now. But um, even, to, even in, in, in modern Western um, horror stories, the ba- the basement is a oh, scary yeah. place. Oh, yeah. You never go in the basement. You never go in the basement. That's no, where no, the, no. the weird noises and you the I, go to I am not going to lie to the you. The horror movies have... I lived in a house for two years, and it was one of those great, like, tail end of the Victorian era, shot go run. It was a oh, beautiful yeah. house. I would not set foot in that basement. <laughs> and that's where the washer and dryer was. I was like, I will go to a laundromat. I'm not going in that basement. No. There are all these underworld vibes, and it's yeah. not quite my house. And it's and it tends to be darker and danker, and there are no it windows. It's a terrifying place. So, there are dead things in that basement. I am not going down there anyway. <laughs> there was there was a there, there was a friend of mine who who recently moved out of a place, but before he did, uh, there were all these bizarre like locked up, nailed up drawers, <laughs> like dozens of them. <laughs> Which, which this individual who's not an archaeologist uh, just took a picture. He's like, they must be like metal drawers. And I get down, like, I start touching things because archaeologists touch yeah, things. True. Like, these are wood. We're totally breaking into these. <laughs> and we actually found a Friday, a Friday the 13th grocery supplement, like like a sale thing. And I was able to figure out, based on it being a Friday the 13th, the sort of the style and the prices was, and the ads, yeah. what year it was. And then, of course... I just then went and looked on Zillow and found out when the damn house was built because screw your detective work. <laughs> uh, but it had been in there from the month they built it, which was actually pretty yeah. awesome. But yeah, no, that, that house also had like somebody's name written in red. <laughs> it wasn't blood. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, and like a ring in the fireplace. No, something horrible happened there. <laughs> that's, that's all I'm saying. That's all. Yeah, I'm, really I'm, bad interior decorations. Right. Yeah, or it just needs to like be blessed by a priest and then like fold it up on itself. One or the other. And almost certainly, and almost certainly, as we will deal with, I think, on the podcast of, of before Halloween, that it was built on the site of an Indian burial oh, ground. Lord. It had to be. Well, the funny thing is, <laughs> funny story. Given, the, given the part of town it's in, I'm not saying any more. But you may not be wrong. Uh, <laughs> So, so, so just don't go into well, the uh, asylum. It, could, Jeff, it also could be an asylum, you know, it might uh, be an Indian burial ground. It oh could be God. An asylum. Well, why don't we go to break? Yes. And when we come back, uh, I have, I have one or two things I want to ask about. And one of these does tie into archaeology and the other does tie into crazy, crazy bullshit. So it's eminently, uh, perfect for this show. We always get there. We always, it may be, always but we always get to the crazy bullshit. Yes. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm the host of the Heritage Voices podcast. Heritage Voices focuses on how CRM and heritage professionals, public employees, tribes, and descendant communities can best work together to protect their heritage through tribal consultation, collaborative ethnography, and indigenous archaeology. Now back to the show. And we are back, and we are still talking with Mark Allen Peterson. And, Jeb, you have a funny story you want to tell us. Well, I have a couple of questions for Mark. But before I do, I just wanted to mention, I recently went and spoke to a, a very great uh, audience at the Miami Valley Astronomical Society in Dayton uh, about the kinds of things we talk about on this show. And there was a great question and answer, lots of great questions and, and answers afterwards. And one of the questions was, have you ever heard – of the Mandela effect. And I had to calm myself and go, 
I'm a co-host on the show Archaeological Fantasies, and if you go look up our <laughs> cryptozoology episode, there's a rant that has become somewhat infamous about the Mandela effect, and and you all were there, so I just won't yes. say any more. But I I just thought you might find that amusing. Anyway, back to our topic on on hand. Um, Mark, I wanted to ask, so we've been talking about this sort of liminal and how jinn are sort of between kind of like God and angels and humans and they're sort of interstitial and they show up in interstitial places. And in the book, I won't mention the name of again, uh, I've been discussing, and we did this on our fairies episode, about the idea that around the world, uh, and I do kind of lump jinn in on this, when you have archaeological things, ruins, but also uh, other things that don't necessarily have an identity uh, of recent building. These things often get attributed to extra humans, to people that are not human, but very human-like. And again, I think that applies to the jinn as we've been talking about. We've been talking about ruins, we've been talking about pyramids, haunted houses, um, the temple, um, all these sorts of things. We've also mentioned the Seal of Solomon, and I know there's this idea, and you, you sort of alluded to this, and this gets very much in the Western tradition, of objects that can trap jinn and whatnot. But right. are there well, – I'd like to talk about that a little, but before we do, are there any, like, archaeological or other kinds of objects that get attributed to jinn that are not big buildings? Um, they can. I mean, sometimes uh, grottos or particular caves will be said to have been – they're not natural. They were created by jinn. Okay. But uh, mostly it's monumental things that right. it's inconceivable that humans could have raised these vast things. So it must have been jinn. Yeah. Although I've also, uh, someone was telling me about a spring and that essentially someone had bound, uh, maybe Solomon, had, had bound uh, jinn to pump eternally. Ah. And so the reason the spring continues to operate is because there's these poor jinn trapped down there uh, who apparently are not a freak. They're, they're stuck with, you know, sort of normal human strength. And so they're just operating this pump manually for eternity. <laughs> uh, very unpleasant job. So, and what that captures is the fact that, you know, for Middle Eastern uh, sorcery and, and magic, much of it is done through the enslavement of jinn. And uh, the tying of knots is uh, a particular, with, within incantations and so on, is a particular kind of magic that's done to control jinn. Uh, so they can be, they can be somehow uh, captured or dealt with through the, the tying of complex knots. Uh, there's a understanding that jinn can be captured and trapped in rings uh, or other vessels. Uh, bound to them in some way, and then you can control them accordingly. And and uh, you you can go online and you can you can buy rings. Well, in in the article they were talking about how there were I want to say this is pronounced seek, which kind of threw me because, uh, as I understand seeks, they don't I don't know anything about seeks, but they don't do this. Um, but anyway, they're they're basically they sound like shaman who have a companion jinn that they then employ to go help them find archaeological sites and then when they find the site they use that jinn and magic to combat the guardian jinn that are there the guardian spirits that are there and then 
clear out all the magic and all the evil gin so that the guys can go and meet the site. Right. No, that's that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, you know, if I'm if I'm a, if I'm a pharaoh, I'm going to bind gin to guard my tomb. And if yeah. I'm a tomb robber, I'm not going to go face a supernatural foe unless right. I have some kind of a weapon to face that supernatural foe with. Right. That, that's we absolutely should be talking about this uh, uh, in the podcast. Yeah, I want to find absolutely. the word so I can spell it so that I don't sound. Yeah, it looked like chic or something like it that. It looked like chic, but I'm just like, there's no way it's pronounced chic. So yeah, well, it's chic, and and oh, the, the, okay, the well. thing is, that, uh, yeah, a chic, a chic can mean a lot of things in different. In, in ordinary, I mean, it can it can be a, a person of authority in a in a right. Bedouin tribe. It can be the person who leads the prayer at a mosque. Uh, it can be a local uh, person of authority. Uh, in a, a small village community, uh, anyone who has a kind, a, a certain who commands certain kinds of authorities can be called a sheikh. Oh, okay. Oh, and, that's a sheikh. Gotcha. Right. Yeah, and if yeah. I have a if I have a jinn, uh, people are going to call me a sheikh. Uh, and that that's what they were saying I'm, in the article here. Yeah. Yeah, I've got the authority to command a jinn. I'm a sheikh. Fair enough. So, all right. I, 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 the question, and I'd like to ask it on the podcast is: so there, the the jinn are not. There's not a taxonomy of discrete categories of different kinds of jinn, or is there? Okay, well, so I was deeply misled by Dungeons and Dragons when I was. A kid. <laughs> okay, that's that's of course the line I jumped back in on. Because <laughs> and we will talk about this intersection on in the podcast. There's there's a very clear there's a they they do they do you know have gin and they have this very clear sort of genealogy and they tie them to elements. Um, that if I was Blake Smith, I would have said a genealogy, oh, but I'm not Blake Smith. Oh, I, I'm glad you're not Blake Smith. Uh, yeah, and yet somehow you managed to get it in there. Yeah. Uh, but. Uh, no, there there really isn't a, a classic typology. Right, in right. fact, it gets really weird when you start talking about ghosts, because when people want to talk about a ghost, they'll they'll use the term jinn or ifrit. Uh huh. So there's a yeah there's there's a uh, there's a movie and an Egyptian movie and and uh, it's um, it uses the word jinn. But it's very clear in the movie that this jinn is actually the ghost of the man's first wife. Okay. And she's she keeps interfering with his life. I, I want to watch half of these movies you describe in your article yes. now, though. I, <laughs> I went to look up the one. Um, I typed in the Arabic name, and it, my computer was like, no. And then I realized it's translated yeah. as talisman, and I'm like, okay, I'll look that up later. But, yeah, I want to see that one now. You can't find these. Oh, um, that's that's the that's uh, a real problem. Um, I I had a, a I had a grad student who took my uh, daughter and I uh, in 2005 into this part of town, uh, a fairly you know a working class part of town where they had these. Um, studios where they made copies of old movies and, and they moved them from film to videotape to uh, CDs, uh, which is also where I bought all of the still photos. And uh, it was, um, I don't know, we, we went there like 10 o'clock at night in order to be able to meet <laughs> people. 
and uh, I still don't completely understand what was going on, but it was great. And I managed to get hold of, I mean, they sat there literally and found videotapes and gave me tea while they ran prints, digitalized and ran prints of these old movies. Oh, wow. So it's a bootlegging operation. Uh, yes and no. It's in, in many cases for some of these older movies. It's not clear who has title anymore. <laughs> oh yeah, but it's okay. a way of preserving right. them. So I mean, we'll go with that story. Honey, bitty blokes, you will see are a staple of archaeology, but we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We'd like to thank Dr. Peterson for coming onto the show with us. Check the show notes for more information on Dr. Peterson's research and other fun articles about gin in the media and in modern culture. We apologize for the slight technical difficulty there at the end, but we hope everyone enjoyed the show. And if you have any questions, you can always contact us at archiefantasies at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash Archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. We don't do dinosaurs! This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. See? Are you happy? Do you get it now? Do you get it?